Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And tonight, it'll just be the two of us, talking about the villains of Doctor Who. Just the two of us, we can make it if we try. So, after what feels like a very long break, uh, welcome back everyone to uh, 42 to Doomsday. Um, just before we uh, we start tonight, um, I'd uh, like to just say a, a big thanks to JR Southall once again for coming on um, and, and guesting on our, our show. Uh, we had the most uh, amazing response from um, our listeners and, and in terms of uh, downloads, it's uh, the most listened to podcast that we've recorded uh, since we started doing this. So uh, yeah, once again, thanks to JR. And I, I, I strongly urge and advise everyone to uh, check out his writing at Starburst. And also, if you haven't already done so, you know, and I think there are not too many fans who, you know, listen to podcasts who haven't, uh, give a listen to the Blue Box podcast, because there's always interesting chat and discussion about all things Doctor Who. So once again, JR, thank you so much for coming on. So before we launch into our chat about a Doctor Who villains, Mark... Uh, what news has been uh, riveting the attention of Doctor Who fans worldwide? Easter came and went. Are we surprised? No. No. I think in the grand scheme of things... Well, I mean, the the, the, the supposed uh, Easter announcement that had been knocking about since the last uh, expected announcement uh, had fallen over was as expected. It never arose. I, I think it had just sort of blew up after um, it was thought that maybe the BBC would de- debut... Capaldi at Easter and then people were saying oh if they're not going to do that this is a perfect time to announce any found episodes and as it turned out nothing was announced uh, there was a bit of a meltdown on one uh, main forum <laughs> which consumed it for four or five days it kept me amused uh, on my Easter break uh, just having just checking in occasionally to read what the latest uh, uh, amazing rantings from one particular poster who clearly had had enough of the Omni rumor but no, there was there was, obviously there was no announcement. Otherwise, we certainly wouldn't be doing this podcast. We'd be watching the ninety, you know, the alleged ninety episodes. But uh, actually, since that, the latest DWM has come out, uh, and it's featured uh, off the back of um, Web of Fear's stunning success uh, in terms of DVD sales. Uh, DWM went and spoke to uh, three uh, interested organisations: uh, the BBC Worldwide, the BFI, and then they uh, snaffled a comment from TIEA's Facebook. Account about the rumours. I think it was the, probably the first time the DWM has actually addressed the rumours. Um, what did you think of the article and what the the quotes that they used, Mark? What do you think? It wasn't a brand new quote from Phil, was it? No, he'd uh, posted that on on Facebook. Uh, T- we should actually call it TR. I think that would probably save my tongue. Well, it was like a Seinfeld episode, wasn't it? It was a statement about nothing. All it was saying, yes, there are some rumours floating around. These main players are denying anything move on and if you find anything please email us yes my belief in the uh, omni rumor waxes and wanes uh depending i suppose on the time of day and my mood but reading i mean i'll just pull up what was on the tia facebook website what phil actually wrote um i'll just read it out here because you know it seems like it's worthwhile doing uh in part he said if any programs do still exist tia will endeavor to recover them safely as with web of fear and enemy of the world 
TIA are not sponsored by any organization. We are a completely independent body. We work alongside many organizations such as the BFI. However, as much as people want specific programs found, wishing them into existence or starting rumors will not magically return them. Individuals trying to extract information which does not exist or is commercially confidential will be deleted unread. Uh, any legitimate inquiries for TIA limited services are welcome. So that tells me two things. One, he's sick of answering emails from loony Doctor Who fans. And two, however as much as people want specific programs found, wishing them into existence or starting rumours will not magically return them. I mean, on a plain reading of that, it seems to me to say that he's saying, I have not found anything other than enemy and web. And leave me alone. And leave me alone. I mean, is that... Would you read that as such, or do you think it's just turning people away and let them, you know, getting them off his back? It's just saying, look over there instead of looking over at me. I'm just actually pulling up that, that statement now. I'm surprised. It's not an uppercase. He usually puts things in uppercase, doesn't he? I'd really like for him to um, you know, hire someone to handle his <laughs> PR uh, because uh, writing, um, <laughs> writing copy is not his skill set. His skill set is going into dangerous places in Africa yeah. and retrieving lost uh, archival television. It's not writing um, press releases. The thing I wanted to say that was probably more pertinent was that the bloke from BBC uh, Worldwide directly addressed one of the main rumours that Marco Polo had been found, had been restored, and was now sitting on iTunes waiting to be released. And he absolutely repudiated that, and he said, no, that is not the case. It's not been found, it's not been restored, and it's certainly not sitting on iTunes waiting to drop. One of the great skills that uh, OmniRumor followers have, have, you know, have learnt or you know, worked with over the last year is to read between the lines on any sort of comment from anyone vaguely involved in it. But there's no, there doesn't appear to be a loophole there. You know, he's basically saying Marco has not been found. It is not being restored. It's not on iTunes. I don't know how you could argue otherwise from that statement. And they're also addressing the um, Power of the Daleks uh, alleged rumours that there was a screening party somewhere. Because they said uh, some missing episodes may have been secretly viewed in what's been presumed to be technical screening. So they're trying to... Knock it on the head? Yeah, knock it on the head. Just knock these rumours on the head and say alleged screenings of missing episodes. No, it hasn't happened. That's it. But Phil didn't... Uh, his usual sign-off is expect the unexpected and he hasn't... Uh, he didn't sign off with that. It does say stay tuned. So that's 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 the Omni rumour where it sits at the moment. I mean, DWM for the first time has, has directly addressed it and it would seem have, you know have quotes that would repudiate the central some of the central tenets of the omni rumor makes you sit there thinking well what is real what is truth and what isn't about any of it so that meltdown that happened the thing that kicked that off was the picture of phil outside the uh, sierra leone television station on what, what continent is, is sierra leone in? it's on the uh, west coast of uh You set me up for that, didn't you? <laughs> I'm expecting to hear Toto dropped in at some stage. No, I'm, come on, I wouldn't do a thing like that. Yes, you would. The timing was amazing because we had our, we're about to launch our podcast with our Omni discussion with JR, and then that picture was released a day or two beforehand, and a certain forum did melt down. I mean, I am trying to wean myself off um, forums. Thanks to the very, very, very strict moderating on Gallifrey Base, it's not really worthwhile checking out their missing episodes thread, which actually was locked and disappeared for 10 days over Easter, which was probably the smartest thing you could do. A bit like a lot of missing episodes. Yeah, but this thread actually came back, unlike uh, you know, supposedly 90-plus episodes. But, um, and, and the other forums, they just... They, look, in, in the face of no new evidence or information, 
it's just an endless circle of repeated information and personal attacks just recycling of information and people stabbing each other in the face that's really what goes on sometimes in these forums which is really disheartening it's the online version of castrovalva it just keeps going on and on and on and around and around and around a bit like this discussion i think we should move on to our next topic <laughs> Uh, the same DWM article uh, talked about the uh, the DVD release of The Underwater Menace, which has been long delayed. And the quote from the, uh, the article is, The DVD release of The Underwater Menace is scheduled for later this year and is set to bring the release of 20th century Doctor Who stories to a close. The disc will contain the two instalments held by the BBC, episodes two and three, with missing episodes one and four reconstructed using audio soundtracks. And the, one, and, and the aspect of that uh, quote that's exercised some uh, fans' minds is the last bit about the uh, audio soundtrack reconstruction. Um, to me, that sounds like it's going to be web of, it's the Web of Fear... Uh, uh, approach. Approach, exactly. Did, did you sort of take that from that quote? Yeah, absolutely. I thought uh, their redict was two episodes or more would be animated. So I'm quite surprised when I read that. An interview a couple of months ago about Planet... Planet 55? It's an animation studio here based in Australia. Yeah, they're based in Australia and they were complaining that the our broadband network is patchy as it is. They can't do their work. And they were talking about opening a facility up in Cardiff. To me, when I read that, meant that they were going to get a lot more work. See, if I was an omni-rumorist fundamentalist... <laughs> I would say that, the, that that last sentence is deliberately misleading. It says, with missing episodes one and four reconstructed using audio soundtracks. Uh, as we know, the Web of Fears audio soundtrack had to be reconstructed from another audio from someone uh, taping it off their television in the 60s. And if I was a fundamentalist believer in the rumor, I would say that this that particular sentence is sort of indicative of perhaps they found episodes one and four and they're going to be you know, fixing up the actual visuals and also repairing the uh, the audio using these soundtracks, the, the, the Holman and uh, Strong soundtracks. But uh, if I was sensible, like I am, it sounds very much like a cost-cutting exercise to reconstruct them using the telesnaps, assuming telesnaps, telesnaps exist for Underwater Menace. They do indeed. It, this is going to be a bit... It sounds like it's going to be a bare-bones release. Uh, and, yeah, it's a pretty disappointing end to a really uh, great... Uh, exercise in releasing all the stories on DVD. I think the extras for this uh, DVD were completed a while ago, so uh, it's it's pretty much ready to go. So obviously a hold up with the animation, or they decided not to proceed with it. And the best option they have is to uh, reconstruct it Web of Fear Part Three style. Well, I mean, there's no mention of animation, and we've been told that Planet Fifty Five, who've done most of the animations, are off uh, doing uh, a great deal of work for. Australia's ABC TV on an animated project. But um, if the Underwater Menace comes out with only episodes two and three, does would that, you know, hold beneath the waterline the Omni rumor? Because if you start having... I mean, the Moonbase came out with animated episodes and Tenth Planet came out with an animated episode and the Ice Warriors came out with animated episodes. Yeah, no Reign of Terror came out with animated episodes. I mean, if Underwater Menace comes out in a similar situation... The 90 plus, uh, everything comes back to the Omni rumor. It's really tiring, and I do apologize to our <laughs> listeners. But if you have those stories, or even in particular this story coming out um, incomplete as such, then I can't see how you can get to 90 episodes plus. It just doesn't make any sense. 
I think you were saying before that um, uh, a well-known uh, UK comedian had been cast in uh, the new series. Comedian slash actor. Yes, Ben Miller is uh, in the Mark Gaddis episode, The Robots of Sherwood, I think it's called. Oh, spoiler alert. He's Gaddis, Gaddis, has Gaddis written that one, has he? Yeah, apparently he's written that one. He's doing a bit of comedy now. Oh, I suppose he's done comedy before, so. Yeah, The League of Gentlemen. That was funny, in a sort of horrifying way. Yeah, the first two series are great. Christmas special and the last series weren't that great, and the film was just not quite great either, to be honest. I've spared myself uh, the film, I suppose. It was diminishing returns, really. Some television shows don't uh, translate very well to film. George and Mildred, the movie in particular. <laughs> I remember my parents took me out of school to go and see that, but uh, the Alan Partridge film was fantastic, so it can work. It can work. So... Tell us about Ben Miller. I've only seen him in a couple of shows. Uh, one was Worst Week of Your Life, of my life, I should say. It was a, a comedy show, and he was very funny in that. Uh, he was also in Primeval as well, and he was in a detective show, which I can't remember what it's called. I've seen some episodes of Primeval. What role was he in that? He was uh, the director of of the of the institute. Uh, he came across as all you know authoritative and sarky, but underneath he was a he was a lovely guy. Okay, I wonder does does is is robots of Sherwood meant because I've avoided spoilers and for those people who don't want to know about robots of Sherwood, we do apologise for keep for saying robots of Sherwood, you know, many many times. Uh, do we know um, if that's indicative of what they're sort of planning for Capaldi's first season? It's going to be a mixture of, you know, sort of scary and dramatic and funny. I mean, is robots of Sherwood going to be an out and out comedy? I've got no idea. It's not going to be like Men in Tights, Mel Brooks's Men in Tights. <laughs> Please God. <laughs> I've called it, if it's appalling, we're going to call it the Men in Tights episode of Doctor Who. I don't know. I read quotes from some of the actors in there saying Capaldi's amazing, but it doesn't give any indication what the season's going to be like. No one working on Doctor Who is going to say it's rubbish. We can discount... I mean, DWM models might as well be a PR publicity sheet sometimes. And it's been like that since it, the series came back, and we understand why. You have to remember, DWM has always put a positive slant on things. Their uh, a, a review of Warriors of the Deep, for example, was ex- <laughs> extremely positive. And I think the word they described, the twin dilemma, was colourful. That's the only word you can use to describe twin dilemma and not be charged with an offence. All right, so Ben Miller is going to feature in Robots of Sherwood. Death in Paradise was the TV show he was in. Is he, is he the Englishman? Yes. Because the, I've been watching Death in Paradise when I was on, on Easter break and there was this tall, goofy-looking fellow who was the English policeman yeah, and then there was this shorter fellow with a sort of a pointier nose. That's the shorter fellow with a pointier oh, nose. Oh, I know who he is then. Okay. Well, consider me educated. Our job is done. Our job is done. We might as well just sign off now. And thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs> All right. Well, enough about the pointy nose Ben Miller. Not that I can talk about with my nose, but anyway, um, let's uh, let's move on to our next topic, which is the villains of Doctor Who. Now, before we get on to our villains topic, uh, I thought we'd uh, start with a letter, in actual fact, uh, or an email, uh, in the modern parlance. Uh, this one is from a, uh, a listener call, who calls himself Captain Hawkins. Hello, Paul Darrow. How are you? <laughs> uh, Captain Hawkins uh, says, Just finished listening to the Horrible Historicals episode. A very good discussion. However, I have one pedantic plot point. The real gunfight at the OK Corral was over in about 20 seconds, not 20 minutes. It was basically two groups facing off in an alley who then opened fire on each other at close range. And I believe the accepted version is that Wyatt, Earp and Co., 
fired first when the other guys went for their guns after what was apparently a misunderstanding. And at least one of the bad guys was apparently unarmed. And the whole thing was over very quickly, as those on the Clanton side who didn't die ran away. Generally speaking, the stuff in the gunfighters is almost completely wrong. Uh, and I suppose that extends to the song as well, completely wrong. Well, as someone who's actually never watched the gunfighters, to my shame, I'm terrible. I'm just not, there's just a whole swathes of the Hartnell era. Bad fan. Bad fan, I know, bad fan. That I've not watched and really should, you know, pull my finger out and just get onto it because you, you, life is short and Hartnell is shorter. So, you know. You would be pleasantly surprised. Well, I mean, I was, I watched, uh, as I said, I watched uh, The Reign of Terror um, and I was, you know, I, I actually enjoyed that. It was. <laughs> A bit grim and gritty, actually, but um, yeah, no, uh, animation aside, it was it was quite good. So yes, I you know, Heart and Alira, I need to watch more of, and the Gunfighters particularly. So all right, so the, let's move on to uh, to the main topic of this evening, which is uh, how, tell me about the villains of Doctor Who. Tonight's discussion, we're going to obviously have a look at the villains of Doctor Who, and mainly the different approaches to their villainy. And also the different stylings of the villains that were have been portrayed in the series over the years and the influence of the different production teams. And we have to make a distinction between monsters yes. and villains. Yes. Uh, the crinoid is a monster. Harrison Chase is a villain and we shouldn't confuse the two. And a brilliant villain at that. A brilliant camp as a row of tents uh, villain <laughs> Harrison Chase was. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the distinction has to be made there because villains, uh, sorry, monsters, generally speaking, uh, you know, lack personality. I mean, you've got, you know, armies of Daleks screaming at people and until the advent of, say, the Dalek Emperor in uh, Evil of the Daleks or more particularly uh, Davros uh, in Genesis, um, the Daleks really were just, you know, a monster and not particularly a villain. I mean, I suppose a villain has... I mean, how would you define a villain? A, a villain is sort of the... The antagonist to the story's protagonist. You can tell I've just looked something up, but I mean they've got their own. I mean a villain has his own sense of, sense of sense of motivations and wants, uh, and coupled with a character, I suppose. To the villains, what they're doing, they don't see there's anything wrong with that. It's perfectly sensible, isn't it? And, but to the Doctor and all of us, who have a different moral code and a different moral compass, what they're doing is, in some cases, completely bonkers. <laughs> Well, I mean, Professor Zaroff from Underwater Menace is a, is a perfect example. I think cracking open the world because he can is not necessarily a particularly sane choice in life, but it is it is something that he clearly wanted to do, and it's villainous. I suppose, I mean, because it's an adventure show, and in, in certain aspects a pulpy adventure show, you, you do need to have a villainous character. I mean, I suppose uh, an unearthly child would be more a documentary about uh, you know our early ancestors if there wasn't that conflict going on within the story um, you know the doctor and, and co turn up and they and they're involved in a sort of inter interhuman interspe well not interspecies but an interhuman uh, argument that if it wasn't there they'd just be wandering around a landscape looking at funny shaped rocks and that could be said for every story if there wasn't a antagonist in there it'd be very very dull and yes. the show would not have lasted as long as it did any show, actually, because it doesn't have to be Doctor Who. I mean, there's usually villains in any film or, or television show you see to drive the narrative plot along and to keep things interesting. Well, well, absolutely. And I mean, you can, I mean, you can see the undeniable attraction, say, of a monster like the Daleks or the Cybermen. But I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose if you have a villain, you have someone who should be as interesting and as motivated as the Doctor. I mean, the Doctor comes in. And plays that you know fulfills the heroic role more or less, and he pits himself against whoever happens to be the you know the, the 
the the baddie at the, at the time. Hmm. And I think as the show progressed in its in its early years, it moved away from sort of faceless monsters to taking on uh, you know more villainous. Uh, individuals who, as you said earlier, have their own motivations and see the world through their own moral compass and, and act accordingly. Hmm. And I mean, whether it's, you know, historical figures like Robespierre in the Reign of Terror, who, you know, instituted the Reign of Terror uh, in, in revolutionary France and thought he was doing, you know, the right thing by his own lights, you know, the mass slaughter of people who he believed was undermining the, undermining the revolution. Um I mean, clearly they, they are motivated by their own wants and needs and, and their own uh, own belief system. And it's the same with Scaroth in, in City of Death, where his aim is to push man's progress along to get to his ultimate aim of going back in time to prevent his race's destruction. And he doesn't care about destroying the human race in the meantime to achieve that aim. He doesn't care. But at, at, what, at what point should the dog... I mean, you know, from a fictional perspective, at what where does the Doctor get the right to step in and say to Scaroth, you have no right to reconstitute your, your species. I mean, a genocide has been inflicted upon them and all Scaroth is really trying to do is have someone else to talk to who looks exactly like him. When you get down to it, so, I mean, where, where does the Doctor get off by saying, well, you can't do that? Is it simply because he's got a, a love for humanity? It's that and it's his moral compass. Although, having, I mean, he didn't commit genocide in Genesis of the Daleks and they tried to pin genocide on, on, on Terror of the Verboid. So it goes against his moral compass and, and I'm just going to stop you. Let's take it in order. During the 60s, how, how did the different production teams what was their approach to you know villains and villainy? I mean, did did uh, say uh, under Verity Lambert did they sort of play it straight? I mean, you had historical figures who you know were again like Robespierre, uh, who 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 were just simply playing a role in history, or they were very down the line, weren't they? There was no camping around apart from the meddling monk. His villainy was just mischievous wasn't it really it wasn't completely nasty apart from trying to sell arms to William the Conqueror's uh, armies but again it just went against that moral code of the doctor going this is not right I'm just going to intervene here and stop it but I suppose I mean that was a, a useful having say the monk was a useful antidote to the more moustache twirling villains that you know the show does throw up uh, more often than not or did throw up more often than not later on I mean because as you say he's more mischievous than anything else but I mean I suppose even though handing over you know advanced weaponry to a bunch of uh you know sort of clothed savages would was 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 a piece of entertainment for him i mean obviously you you, you look back and you go well the consequences of doing that are a massive rewriting of history and uh, you know upsetting the balance of of earth's history so i suppose by that the doctor could be you could argue the doctor was right to step in and and and, and stop that lots of arms deals are going on in real life at the moment nobody's stopping those no that's true that where is the doctor uh, in deepest darkest africa or eastern europe or southeast asia well perhaps that's a bit too real world for this discussion but um, <laughs> moving moving along there was it's it's interesting that uh, roughly the same well you know three years earlier uh, james bond came to came to movies and one of the central tenets of of the bond movies is is that you have a, a central villain that, mm. that, that James Bond, you know, fights against and, and and eventually faces off at the end. And you can see, I mean, the whole idea of an organisation like Spectre and uh, Ernst Blofeld as you know the leader, you know, the, the catch stroking uh, leader, <laughs> master master criminal. Yeah. Um, you get to see that sort of later on. I think I suppose later on in, in the uh, in the Hartnell era with a character like say Mavic Chen. Yes. Who is clearly cast from the same mold and i think he's masterfully played by kevin stoney does a masterful job of portraying that sort of villainous character and mm. um it, it clearly is working off the back of the james bond thing and it just goes to show that uh, you know 
Doctor Who does mirror the times uh, that it that it is in that the, that the stories are being made. Tobias Vaughn and the Invasion is more in line with Blofeld. I mean, even though it's portrayed by the same wonderful actor, but mm. I mean, all you really needed was Tobias Vaughn to give him a bloody cat. Exactly. It's a shame Kevin Stoney was never cast as a Bond villain. He would have been marvelous. He's got that wonderful look on his to his eyes, that sort of lazy look of malevolence. Yeah. That um, that you can just see, you know, him actually stroking a cat while he just dispenses, uh, you know, insane uh, insane commentary to people around him. Go do this, go do that. Barking out orders, Parker. A story like The Invasion is elevated because it has a character like uh, Tobias Vaughn. I mean, mm. otherwise it's just the wheel in space set on Earth, more or less. Yeah. With faceless, you know, Cybermen wandering around talking in a monotone. And the Cybermen don't come into it till later on anyway. No, and I suppose that that just allows a character like uh, Tobias Vaughn to, to develop a character, you know, to take up space in the story and, and be an influence. Uh, and he's, he serves as a real, really good counterpoint to to the Cybermen. That he's a, theirs is a faceless villainy and his is a more human villainy. And which do you think is the worst? I mean, I suppose... I would I would cast Vaughn's plans as being you know far worse. He's effectively betraying his species, I suppose, for for profit and and, and power. And especially when he's smacking around Professor Watkins, that blow he gives him is quite striking, quite confronting actually for mm. a piece of children's television. Yes, well, I, I you know you sometimes you hear the argument about children's television, but then when you you see the way the bad guys are portrayed and and what they're allowed to get up to, and I mean that that sort of thing is I don't know whether we've become soft in the intervening 40 years but it is you know it is a it is a fair old blow that uh, there's often and you know you, you think well what, what were kids how were kids reacting to that sort of thing back in you know in the late 60s it's hard to say hmm. but I mean one of the other th- the functions that villains do serve is to you know is to is as a counterpoint to the doctor that it sort of uh, shows in you know strong relief or bold relief the Doctor's essential goodness or heroism, as as Canner pointed to their villainy or you know or or badness, and someone like you know the, the Doctor feels the urge to oppose someone like Mavic Chen simply because he you know his plans are completely wrong and a, and a complete betrayal, mm. and they're the antithesis of what the Doctor believes in. I suppose mm. the Doctor believes in individualism, in freedom, in you know you know speaking out and protecting and serving the underdog. Whereas you know these these sort of higher villains or higher bad guys are intent on exploiting those weaker than them for their own selfish desires, and also didn't help uh, Mavic Chen's uh, aims join forces with the Daleks. So maybe if, if Mavic Chen hadn't brought the Daleks in, that uh, the Doctor wouldn't have been so opposed to it. <laughs> he, might have, he might have just waved that one through and said, "Look, you dominate the solar system. You go for your life. You're much better than that nutcase, the Master. You go help yourself, mate. You're fine." <laughs> But I mean, when you think about it, you know, Guardian of the what was maybe Guardian of the Solar System? Yeah. So you basically have a sort of a tyranny of of one man attempting to control a you know a widespread system of colonies and stuff like that. And you sort of think about it. Well, would democracy be better than that, or would one man rule from above be a better system? And you sort of wonder. Well, is he really a villain in that regard? Does he? Does he offer a better way of organising people and power and, you know, getting things done? I mean, one of the things people... Some people look at, say... And this is where we get real world. <laughs> some people look at China and say, all right, the Communist Party, it's one party. It's a one-party dictatorship. It's a loathsome regime. And it is. Um, but they get things done. And you look at, you know, Western democracies and you think... Um, 
and you know the communist party is basically a villainous organization you know with with you know two top villains at the top and then you look at other western uh western democracies and you think oh god they're still talking about this or they're hopelessly gridlocked or they're they just can't get anything done how have they actually got to the top of the tree and i suppose the attraction of the villainous character is that they not only are they darkly charismatic but they get things done until the doctor comes along and tears them down and um i suppose that's i mean that's and a good villain like that you know uh does have some attractive features i mean you look at the master in the pertwee years and he's an obeying figure he's i mean he's the counterpoint to the doctor but he is you know he is an urbane figure who uh who has quality you know refined tastes and he's just like shrinking people down to the size of a doll and dominating the earth for whatever reason is china the good communist regime as opposed to north korea who have as their leader i mean he's just he's a stereotypical he's a cartoon character he's a cartoon character and you know he'd be laughed out of court if he appeared on doctor who because he'd be just too he'd be just too laughable so wrongly <laughs> It's funny because it's true. Anyway, let's go back onto topic. So, yeah, so I suppose as you go through the 60s, there's a move towards a more central villainous character who is a, is a counterpoint to the Doctor. He's more, you know, he's the the mirror. He mirrors the Doctor in certain regards. Hmm. Uh, you know, and it, they become... I mean, we had the Dalek Emperor who was more a, uh, a character than your, than your usual... Um, than your usual Daleks, and even in the invasion, it was—is it a cyber planner, something like that? But you could see that you could see that the production teams in that latter period were realizing, I suppose, that you needed a character as a viewpoint character for the bad guys. Hmm. That you needed a Dalek Emperor. That you needed a Mavic Chen. That you needed a um, Celestial Toy Maker. It wasn't sufficient to have a set of games that were tests of you know life and death. You needed someone around who, who would organise that. Yeah, to drive it. A driver of that. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, well, it, it, it did make the show, I suppose, more more uh, more distinctive. And it did mirror where, I suppose, popular culture in terms of entertainment was going. And I mean, they were not doing anything different. I mean, you, you cast yourself back to the pulps in the early part of the 20th century and you had, you know, villains like uh, Dr. Fu Manchu or even before that, you had a Moriarty figure who famously was the inspiration for, for the master. So there's always been that sort of characteristic in, uh, in, in, in entertainment, in pop entertainment. And Doctor Who merely, merely picked up on that. We've just mentioned Zaroff, uh, Mavic Chan, and also Tobias Vaughan. But they're the ones, for me, that really stick out as a villain of either, take for, say, for example, Zaroff, who is completely on the over-the-top spectrum, where Tobias Vaughan and Mavic Chan are wonderfully theatrical and quite malevolent mm. but to me out of that 60s run the villains that really stick out in my mind i'm as we're discussing this struggling to think of other particular villains because i mean you look at the case of marinus and it's a species the vord who are the, the villains and you look at the gunfighters and you go well who you know i suppose there's you know who are the real villains in in this piece who was the distinctive villain the space pirates where where are the where are the the distinctive memorable villains in that and i suppose that's why some of those stories are regarded less er hmm. than some of these other stories because there's 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 just this lack the, the narrative lacks a viewpoint character who you can boo and hiss at and it's their availability as well i, I think if you've got stories like the savages where frederick jaeger's character who from what, what i can vaguely remember was quite malevolent but 
Mm. It didn't really register with me. But Captain Pike was quite malevolent as well. But I only sort of really found that out going back and listening to it. But again, and he doesn't reach those levels of a Mavic Chen Zaroff. And just casting my mind back to the the two, the couple of the historical stories that I listened to. I mean, you look at uh, say the Mythmakers, and you go, well, where, where's the villainy in the Mythmakers other than you know humanity's never-ending uh, belief and desire to kill each other? Hmm. You know, and you go, well, I, I suppose Agamemnon was, you know, uh, his his motives were not pure. And then you look at, say, the massacre and you think, well, where, where's the villainy or where's the evil here? And you, you think, well, is it historical factors? Is it a religion? You know, the, the, the fight between, you know, different aspects of the same religion. Is it Catherine de' Medici r- 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 desire to rule France through her son? Hmm. Um, th- these are th- th- these are minor, minor evils, if, if you will. But I suppose Doctor Who specialises or came to specialise in uh, central characters or central villains who you know you could uh, you could uh, not identify with but who you could look to and go okay this is the central villain here uh, I know uh, what to expect from him and you know hopefully he'll be entertaining and uh, I, I suppose more often than not the memorable sto- the memorable stories are memorable because these villains are memorable I've just thought of one salamander oh it all comes it all comes back to the omni rumor now salamander again it goes down to what he believes is right I mean he's not a nice character I mean you know you know tricking people to live underground for several years and lying to him about a, a false ho- uh, nuclear holocaust but I mean you look at a character like that and you, you think to yourself all right so I mean life is messy and you you yearn sometimes for a decisive a decisive person to you know to pick up the slack and go everyone march in this direction, and a character like Salamander is like that. He's his methods aren't nice. There's blackmail and there's you know there's murder on the side, but his motives are all right. It's incidental that I'll be feeding the world whilst I rule it, but you know people will be fed. And this fellow he seems like a nice Mexican. I mean, there are plenty of nice Mexicans in the world, and, you know, clearly Salamander. What a silly name for a Mexican, Salamander. I mean, it, I suppose it's distinctive. I like that accent, that variable accent. But um, Sounds a lot better than Juan, doesn't it? Juan. Juan. Imagine saying Juan all through uh, Enemy of the World. Juan, the great dictator. Nah. No, it's, it's nah. yeah. I mean, Napoleon is a distinctive name. Hitler is, is a distinctive name. Stalin is a distinctive name. Uh, you got to go with something that people... It rolls off the tongue and it's just full of menace. So moving on from the 60s, we move into the 70s where I believe that uh, the very best Doctor Who villains uh, came through. We uh, Before we move on from season 7, we should probably look at the more... Uh, the, the villains that were depicted there. I mean, being Earthbound, uh, the Doctor faced more human villains... And I would argue that in some of the stories, at least, those human villains were, were you know, their villainy was more shades of grey. They, they, they believed in what they were doing and they weren't, and they, whilst their methods weren't particularly, you know, nice, the, the, the ends that they were searching for, you know, was to safeguard humanity, particularly, and I'm specifically mentioning uh, or referring to the ambassadors of death. General Carrington was the character, wasn't it? He just thought what he was doing was right. Uh, same with Professor Stallman. He thought what he was doing was right, although his judgment was clouded by green. And I suppose, uh, if I was to go out on a limb, that a lot of the 70s, the way that the villainy that we get, um, I mean, the 60s is, has long been regarded as a sort of... Uh, one of uh, idealism 
And when that sort of that ship founded on the rocks of, say, Vietnam and later on uh, Watergate, um, you, you, you sort of your villainy during the 70s is of a not nastier, but a, a sort of an acknowledgement that in the real world, uh, people's motives are not always pure. And the, the, the nasty people that you the nasty people that you come up against um, are really and truly nasty. And you, you, I mean, you, you, you move, you see that, uh, I suppose, during the Hinchcliffe Holmes era, uh, and I suppose that's probably an influence from, you know, the, the sort of stories that they were being influenced from. But the sort of the 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 the, the purity of, of the '60s villain um, gives way to a a darker, edgier, nastier uh, '70s villain. Um, and here I'm specifically talking about someone like Sutek or Davros. And we'll talk about this later, but when you get into the 80s where um, idealism has turned into complete cynicism, you, you, get, uh, you, get, you get mercenary characters who, who come across as being heroic, like um, the mercenary in Resurrection and Attack of the Cybermen, whose name escapes me. Lytton. Lytton, um, who is sort of portrayed as a, he has a heroic end in, in Attack of the Cybermen, which you wouldn't really get for any sort of... Uh, half or semi or full-on villain uh you know during the 70s but rolling it back i mean who were the iconic uh, villains during say the, the pertwee era we've mentioned obviously starman before and i know he was talking about the degree of villainy in the 70s is quite uh, stark but somebody like in clause of axos mr chin who who is in a sense a villain by public servant villain where he's tried to foist axonite onto the planet and he thinks he's doing the right thing, and and obviously he's got his superiors telling him to do it as well. So his villainy is quite inept, really. It's it's fairly mundane because his motivation is to advance his career, not to dominate the world. But if you look at the marshal in, say, the mutants, uh, his villainy is really to try and keep the regime that he is comfortable with, and and obviously supports in power. Well, I mean, he's he's a more monstrous figure because he's quite willing to engage in genocide mm. to keep his very comfortable and plush position. I mean, he he likes the power that he wields, and he's a particularly cruel figure. Uh, and it's an interesting comment on. I suppose colonialism that um, uh, you know, which the British had been uh, receding from for, for many years, but the, you know, they, in a sense, the producers of that story or the writer of that story saw that Britain's colonialism may not have been, you know, the enlightened attempt that it was, mm. and more an, an, and more of an exploitative, uh, domineering, uh, racist. Uh, attempt at controlling, you know, in air quotes, please people, air quotes, lesser races. Um, I don't believe that, obviously, uh, in lesser races. But um, yeah, it, it, that, now that you mentioned the marshal in the in the mutants, it's um, it's a, he's an interesting character in that regard. It's a shame with the Pertwee era that obviously the master is seen to be the main villain throughout all the stories. But you can look at stories, say, Day of the Daleks, a controller there. Again, he is under orders, under sufferance, to really give orders on, on behalf of the Daleks to, to run mankind. So he's he's quite complex as well, I think. He has that rare position of being a sympathetic villain as such because he, um, and understandably, I mean, when there's, the Daleks have complete dominion over the Earth and there's you know virtually nothing that anyone can do to, to take them out um, other than a madcap scheme to go backwards in time and stop them from ever you know winning, mm. um, he has come to the decision that, well, 
you know, all right, we're, we're enslaved, but at least we're alive. And being alive is, in my opinion anyway, better than being dead. Mm. Um, so this is, that's the, you know, the, the, the price I'm willing to pay that, you know, subservience to the Daleks sees the species, the human species go on. And I mean, you can, you can perfectly understand um, his, his approach. I mean, in other times and places, he would be regarded as a quizzling you know, someone who's willing to sell out the human race for his own, you know, advancement or protection or comfort. But uh, I'm prepared to, you know, give the, the, the controller, cut him a lot of slack for his approach. Interestingly enough, when the controller defies the Daleks and, and dies as a result, there's somebody very, very quickly uh, get into that position to take over. Which just goes to sh- goes to highlight the sacrifice that the controller made, that, you know, mm. he, he it, it's, it's a... He receives a hero's death by defying the Daleks in, in a way. And then you sort of think, well, is he really a villain? I mean, the person who replaced him is clearly a slimy uh, toady who'd be willing to do anything for the Daleks just to you know, save his own skin and, and, and increase his own power and comfort in life. Mm. After all that, you probably wouldn't even call him a villain, really. No, that's right. He's, he's, just, he's just human when you get down to it. And he's trying to survive in the way that he can. Exactly, exactly. Mm. I mean, I think that's a very good point that, you know, survival... Uh, and the, the you know the un, the, uh, the the urge to live, uh, so to speak, um, will make anyone do anything. Just about there's very few ide- very few long lived idealists in my book. What about Lupton from uh, Planet of the Spiders, where he just wants power? He's been trodden down through his work life and and obviously his personal life, and he sees an opportunity to get power, and he seizes it and says, "I want to right the wrongs of my life." And will do anything to get there. The quality of the Planet of the Spiders aside, a character like that just goes to show that the show, at that point, was you know treating its audience, you know seriously. I mean, here's an entertaining story about giant spiders, and uh, let's all get frightened and jump around. But I mean, you get a character like Lupton, and, and he could be any one of us. You know, stuck in a dead end job, in a loveless relationship. You know, the the the, the bloom has gone off his youth. He's now in middle age. What what you know? What what has his life been for up to that point? And then he does a podcast. And then <laughs> he does a podcast. And you and you and you you think, well, if I was in his position, searching for something more in life, would I ignore that opportunity, even if it involved giant spiders sitting on my back? You know, it's sometimes sometimes life throws up hard choices or you know great temptations and could can you condemn someone like him for doing that no absolutely not again the show is treating the audience with a you know with a bit of uh you know assuming that the audience has some some intelligence and is is offering up that in in offering up that opportunity to make to to, to think about it in that regard uh, one thing i liked about the pertwee era the in particular the malcolm Hulk stories uh the the villains such as Invasion of Dinosaurs, you have Professor Whitaker and Grover, his name is. Again, they want to go back to a simple idyllic age and they're happy to wipe out humanity to get there to further their aims and beliefs. I think the Malcolm Holt characters uh, give a very good shade of grey in terms of they're not, you know, they're villainous, but there's a reason for their villainy. No, that's true, but I would, I mean, for someone who was a socialist, Mac Hulk was quite willing to stick the knife into people who had idealistic views. I mean, because the whole plan, the whole golden age plan is pure idealism that, you know, that humanity is corrupt. The world is too far gone. We chosen few are willing to wipe out, you know, all of human history and roll the clock back and start again. 
And I think that 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 story, in a sense, is an attack on that sort of idealism. That you know, we all want the world to be a better place, but uh, the price that they're willing to pay is on the back of the the, the complete existence of humanity. And I I just think it's an it's a, it's a it's he's he's having a go at that idealistic fervor that some people embraced during the seventies. I mean, environmentalism grew up and, and expanded and exploded during the seventies, and I think that the methods that he is satirizing or undermining or in in uh, invasion of the dinosaurs is is a is a countervailing force against that sort of belief system. What are your favorite villains from the Pertwee era? Apart from the master, was the master a favorite villain of yours? I mean, I, now you can see that the master is a sort of a colossus that's, that strides across the Pertwee mm. era. Um, but in terms of terms of villains and villainy, in I mean, I suppose it's the monsters that sort of more stick out for me from my childhood memories. You know, the maggots and spiders and 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 Agadora and and and, and things like that. I mean, uh, that uh, who was that thing in the box? On on Peladon, uh, uh, Arcturus. Arcturus, who uh, just a strange little villain. There's an eye and a body, little figure in a box. As for me, it was just the monsters. I think that more than anything else. And as, as I've grown up and you know listened to other friends and 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 and, and looked at the stories again, it's the more human, uh, the more human villains that that sort of speak to me now because you know I'm older. I'm not a, co- a child anymore. But so I can I can see that those um, those those characters or those you know villains with, with whose whose personalities or characters are, are broken in some way are more appealing to me because they sort of match the the villainy that you see on TV these days, which is a more of more more human debased sort of villainy, mundane mm. mundane villainy. And then I suppose, well, are there any other villains that you that you speak up that, that, that you come to mind for you for the Pertwee era? The story colony in space, the whole IMC setup. That's quite uh, that whole setup is villainous, isn't it? Really, it's got its uh, henchmen to run. Its philosophy and its uh, edicts in terms of what they want to do uh, with the people on that planet. And you had Captain Dent, who was the main protagonist in that story. And also you had a contrast of that with Caldwell, who he went believing what IMC were doing were right. And then towards the end of the story sort of changed his opinion of their of, of his beliefs of what the company was doing. Even though the story is quite dull, I think as an adult... I appreciate that story more now than what I did when I first saw it. IMC uh, demonstrates, you know, people's preoccupation with the rapacity or the sometimes rapacity of capitalism, and it prefigures what happens in the eighties with uh, with the character of Sill, who is mm. pure capitalism run amok, um, and and the evil of well, I mean, the effects of of that, the effects that capitalism can have on people. I mean, you have these colonists who are who are effectively removed. You have these colonists who are effectively marooned uh, by IMC, who you know have to live under their auspices, and uh, and then you have underneath all that the the sort of the locals who are who are exploited as well. So, um, it, I mean, it's an interesting take where you have uh, a corporation more than anything else is the villain, and people are doing their bidding uh, in a, in a sense. Should we move on to Tom Baker's villains? Well, I think we should. I think we should because, I, in my opinion, this is the 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 the, the grand uh, the grand gallery of villains. The grand gallery of villains, where mm. it's just a, a, a veritable rogues gallery of uh, 
of memorable characters from go to woe, basically, especially during the Hinchcliffe and and Holmes era, where it's just an endless parade of madness and perversity and extremism run amok. And it's just absolutely fantastic. I mean, you cannot go wrong, even in some of the weaker stories. I mean, something like Hand of Fear, um, Eldrad is a a, a memorable figure. Um, But let's let's wind all the way back. Um, we have, you know, Robot and we have Hilda Winters, who are unusually for the show, I suppose, uh, was a female villain, a female villainess, no less. That's right. Um, and again, she was motivated by a higher fascist ideal <laughs> that an elite of uh, geniuses would rule the world after causing a nuclear holocaust. But that, that, that brought along a welcome, um, a welcome change, I suppose, because, you know, you had your testosterone fueled villains. Uh, during the during the Pertwee era, and it, she made a good foil for Sarah Jane as well uh, in some encounters. It's just interesting to see the contrast between sort of a more idealistic Sarah Jane and and a hard bitten, um, cynical, you know, corrupt um, monster who was willing to you know sacrifice humanity on the on the altar of her own genius. Uh, that's just interesting. But then, of course, I mean that's that's the sort of the, the hang or the holdover of the Let's uh, Dix era, and then we get into. Uh, just, just some wonderful, uh, wonderful, you know, characters uh, in the in the Hinchcliffe Holmes era proper. Give me your favourite ones from that era, Mark. I think we mentioned Harrison Chase beforehand. He's as mad as a box of frogs, isn't he? Really mad as a box of frogs in a lovely rainforest. And Scorby, what a brilliant foil he is. I love Scorby. I wrote a piece of fan fiction about Scorby. That uh, well, that's how memorable a character he was. That I was inspired to write about that that, that fellow. I mean, he's just—he's just wonderful, hard-bitten. He's—he's a, he's a perfect seventies, seventies um, anti-hero, really. Yeah. Uh, it's just a pity that he was killed off, because I could just see him follow, you know, leave, leaving Chase's estate and getting into some shenanigans in the underworld, of, uh, in London's underworld. It's just fantastic. We mentioned before that the approach of the villains and the portrayal of the villains is styled by the production team's approach, where. You had, you know, Holmes Hinchcliffe, very gritty villains. But in the Williams era, they were slightly more... Um, Faye? I think Faye is a word. I think Faye is a better word. But they're still entertaining. I mean, there's some great villains in, in the Williams era. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. The Graf Vindicay in the Ribos operation and Count Grendel in the Android Atara. They're moustache-twirling villains. Their aims are still the same as uh, many other villains in Doctor Who. It's just their portrayal. Graham Williams wanted to steer it in a different direction from Philip Hinchcliffe. There's a lot of touch. There's there a lot. is a lot of touch. but uh, yeah, And the epitome of that, of course, is Scaroth. To me, he is... You know, he is up there with the Harrison Chase, but he's on a different spectrum. That's a big finish series waiting in the wings, isn't it? At home with a Jaggeroth. <laughs> Sharon, where's my face? <laughs> 18 CD series coming soon, the big finish. Subscribers get more. At home with a Jaggeroth. That, that's fantastic. Winding it back to the Hinchcliffe uh, Holmes mm. era, you, you, you see that, um, in a sense, the monsters get pushed aside slightly and there's a representative figure who becomes you know, their voice. So you see, you know, Davros for the Daleks, you see Broton for the Zygons. And that approach enables us, again, you sort of return to that sort of more chari- darkly charismatic figure. Um, and looking at a story like the Ark in Space, uh, you, 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 you think, well, who are the villains of the piece here? And you go, well, I suppose it's these large insects. But really, it's the, the real villainy or the real horror in that is Noah's transformation from a human into into a Wirren and you see that progress of him 
sort of losing his humanity but desperately trying to hang on. Yeah. And even though he is leading, uh, leading the the Wirren, in the end he he has enough humanity left to you know destroy him to destroy them to sort of cast mm-hmm. off that conditioning that's coming over him and go no I I don't want to be I don't want to be you know the 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 end of the human race, I want to give it a chance to live, and that is the kicking off point for a more a more adult approach I suppose. Uh, during that during that particular era, I mean, you could rattle them all off. You, you, when you look at Davros, Davros is is later on. Davros becomes more of a ranting figure, and unfortunately, that, that's unfortunate. And you even see that in the, the in the modern era with um, is it the Stolen Earth? Yes, yes, where he's just pure pure crazy. But in um, I mean, Michael Wish's performance is rightly regarded as one of the high points of the series in Genesis of the Daleks where you can actually have a conversation with Davros that doesn't involve him screaming all the time. And, you know, the, the doctor can sort of bargain with him, you know, the, the famous, uh, you know, the, by the, with the pressure of my thumb argument, that uh, he, Davros... And, and, and again, Davros's motivations are extreme, but perhaps he is the most clear-eyed person on Scaro, that he can see that for the Khaled race to, to, to live and prosper that his endpoint is the only endpoint that this war if it doesn't you know if it isn't stopped will you know eliminate all life on the planet i will force the mutation of my people to this particular endpoint and this is how they survive but there is resistance to his viewpoint there is resistance but are they as clear-eyed as him they see what he's doing and they're absolutely appalled at what he's going to do so they try and stop it so they are clear-eyed in their revulsion of that plan. If they win, say say Davros is knocked off at the you know in the first episode, wh- wh- how, how can anyone on the planet win? Because the war will continue to roll on, and all it will be all it will end up being is mutual destruction. Yeah, you know, at least Davros has offered them a way out. Here is a being bred for war, bred for survival, and. Um, and, and and which can take its place on the planet and eventually in the universe. I'm playing devil's advocate here. If you haven't already worked it, out. Right, I'm trying to play devil's advocate as well. It keeps focusing on Davros's viewpoint, whereas suppose you look at the sympathetic characters, it, like Garmin. The Garmin. That's a, yeah, but I mean, you could argue that Garmin is a hopeless idealist who talks about you know preserving the be- the better instincts of the, of, of the Khaled race and not you know instilling in them a hatred of all other beings. But, you know, where has that got them in a thousand years of war? You know, they're, 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 they're skulking in an underground bunker under a dome surrounded by a wasteland for a planet. Well, how, how, how could they possibly retrieve that from the situation that they've all found themselves in, Carlids and Thales, you know, together? There's no way that they'd have a, a rapprochement and come together with, you know, you know, daisy chains around their necks. It's just to the it's 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 a fight to the end. At least Davros is clear eyed. But that's where they went wrong. You know they should have got the the love in happening. Too late for that. Davros is the <laughs> hero of Genesis of the Daleks, <laughs> and the Doctor and the Time Lord stepping in is a bad thing. God, I can't believe I've just said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can but look at this. You can argue that the Time Lords are selfish in in, in their motives. They're the biggest hypocrites in the universe. They are the biggest, and they're and they're probably you know, and as we saw, I suppose later in in in, in the modern era, you know, Rassilon is 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 a, is a horrible monster, as RTD would would probably had him depicted. Hmm. But you know, I mean, of all of the of all of the characters in um, in Genesis of the Daleks, Davros is the one who has a goal, knows how to get to his goal, 
and is being foiled by you know the, the time lords who themselves want to maintain their position at the top of the tree who are afraid of the Daleks. You, why would you th- attempt to you know, stop their or stop their development in, in, in the cradle? Because they can see the evil and the chaos and the destruction that will reign over the universe. That's why they're going to try and stop them. Which is, but they can see the chaos and the evil in the universe that is aimed at, their, at them, at their center of power, at their control over the universe. All right, I'm, again, I'm playing devil's advocate now. I've taken us off the garden path. Or the Garmin path. Yes, thank you very much. But I mean, they're the sort of Davros is the sort of character that you know. It, 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 that's the reason why he is you know so beloved and uh, and and appreciated because there's you know there's shades of shades of something in his character. And then of course there are the great character or villains like Sutek. Um, I mean, Sutek is just pure evil. You know, what's what's his line? Your evil is my good. I mean, that's just a masterful line from a masterful writer. Mm. Um, and uh, well, I mean, who are the who are the characters in in the Hinchcliffe Holmes era? The Jew or the villains that you like? The Kraals. All right, that's where my argument might fall down. But... <laughs> <laughs> now, the master and deadly assassin is now. That's an interesting case in point. I would argue that shows the development of the show mirroring the development of society. That the the master in the early seventies is, is this urbane figure. I mean, you know, he treats everyone around him as as if they're an insect, but he's not above you know the finer things in life. And then when we get to Gallifrey and the master is skulking in the shadows and is this horrible decayed figure. And not only is his physical form decayed, but his moral sense is decayed. His mind is, is, is has plunged into, you know, into evil and, and chaos and destruction. And it's, 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 it's actually quite shocking because, if, I mean, you look at the fiction of the show and you go, everything's a continuum and you move from the master to, as played by Roger Delgado, and then you see the master on Gallifrey and it's almost you it's 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 quite shocking it's quite confronting to see the master reduced to that level of pure hatred i suppose you can also apply the same argument to uh, dolgado and ainley they're very similar where they're both quite urbane when you get to peter pratt and eric roberts they just want to survive and they don't care how they get there and their personality and their drive is just pure madness to survive it is pure madness and i suppose madness is an is an easy cop-out for a, for a show like doctor who that you know you say that your character that the bad guys are mad they're, they're consumed by their own insanity i shouldn't say mad i should say it's their drive to survive but i mean they come across as being insane i mean you you, you look at the master in deadly assassin and in keeper of mm. Traken, and while they have their mental faculties about them they're just you know pure bonkers crazy in a, in a sense and they're very dark figures they're very they're, they're, there's no you don't get a good feeling at the end of the keeper of Traken because i mean i remember watching that for the first time and you know it's it's all happiness and and, and, and ice cream and, and and butterflies at the end you know and the twinkling music the twinkling music and then suddenly tremas is consumed his his body is taken over and his mind is driven away and you go bloody hell what's just happened here i'll never change the clocks for daylight saving ever again that's it just yeah exactly and uh, but but that, i suppose and that in a sense matched the tone of you know season 18 where it's you know dark and decay and, and a bit you know a bit gloomy that you would have a, a downbeat ending like that um which which is a uh, yeah which is well, was an interesting approach at that time what other villains in the hinchcliffe homes era there's clearly there's magnus grill from the talons of weng Shiang. Who he's 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 a bit loopy as well, isn't he? He's. I mean, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna get out there and chop me some uh, chop me up some uh, some prostitutes and and drain the life out of them, 
and you know make large rats to run around and Hieronymus from the Mask of Mandragora I mean he's he's possessed isn't he really well again and he's like the Noah, like Noah in, in Ark in Space I mean it's when you have a disembodied villain or evil instead of having like a, a sparkler floating around at the <laughs> and 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 being the the viewpoint bad guy, you you need uh, it's just a trope in Doctor Who, isn't it? It's just one of those uh, cliches that you you have uh, a human figure be representative of the evil, so that you can uh, you know you can identify with it more, and it becomes more of a threat. I mean, a sparkly piece of light bouncing around the screen doesn't appear to be as threatening as a saturnine looking figure like a Hieronymus. Um, you know, making strange pronouncements in medieval or Renaissance Italy. We're very lucky that uh, in Poems Hinchcliffe era, the portrayal of those villains were truly fantastic. Like, they're, they're so memorable because the performances were so memorable. You're absolutely right. If they'd been, I suppose, Professor Zaroff uh, portrayed, um, you'd sort of think, oh, well, you know. But there's plenty of, there's plenty of good, just good acting that, that, that brings them up. And and in Talons of Wing Shiang, you see um, uh, Lee Chang, uh, played by John Bennett, who, again, he's a sort of a sympathetic, uh, a sympathetic, you know, bad guy or villain. Because, I mean, all he's doing is acting for someone who he believes is a god. And yes, he's procuring the deaths of prostitutes. But, you know, I mean, if a god comes down out of the sky and stands in front of you and, and, and asks you to act for him, well, you know, what are you going to say? And if it means a few prostitutes in in, uh, in Victoria and London get the chop, well, um, so be it. But uh, questions of race and taste aside, that's another uh, winning portrayal from that era. I mean, a lot of these stories are derivative of you know other uh, other movies and other books, but it's just the quality of the performances that you get that make makes them memorable. I mean, you know, again, Talons of Wing Shiang it calls back to any number of. Of cliches and tropes from 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 literature from from the era that it's set in, but you have you know Magnus Grill who's memorable, you have Lee Chang who's memorable, you have Mister Sin who's memorable, you have the setting that is memorable, and and the icing on the cake is the uniformly great performances and Morbius as well. Well, Morbius exactly. I mean, you you again you get the antithesis of the Doctor, a, a Time Lord gone mad with power, not mad with power, but who who is who is reached for supreme power and has fallen from a great height. Hmm. I mean, in in that situation, he mirrors he, he he mirrors Lucifer in a sense because I mean he 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 had it all, you know. Lucifer sat at the right hand of God and rebelled, and Morbius sat at the higher echelons of the Time Lord, you know, race, and had it all and reached for more and fell. And there's a degree of and, and his fall was complete. I mean, he lost his physical form. He was reduced to a brain in a tank, and then latterly this freakish monster that he was forced to inhabit. Mm. And, I mean, there's a degree of sympathy there that you can understand, you know, someone like that wanting revenge on the people who have, you know, as he sees, uh, forced him to this particularly debased form of existence. And um, he's he, he, that's an interesting villain. And, of course, Big Finish brought him back for uh, a sequel. But the, I think the more interesting character in... in um, in the brain of Morbius is uh, is it uh, Solon? Professor Solon, yes. Professor Solon, who um, well, you tell me all about Professor Solon. He's a nutter, <laughs> portrayed by the wonderful Philip Maddock. He he was a, a disciple of Morbius, so he has spent his life trying to recreate him. And he chops off poor old Kondo's hand to give Morbius a hand. <laughs> poor old Kondo. It's a particularly cynical view of of followers of um, of cult like figures. 
I mean, later in that decade, you'd have the Jonestown uh, massacre where people, you know, were willing to kill themselves because their their leader told them to. Mm. Um, and you, you sort of get that through through history. But you know, Solon was willing to sacrifice uh, a glittering, you know, medical scientific career to exile himself in an abandoned, you know, in a in a castle on a forgotten planet mm. and dedicate his life. And while on, you know, if he'd been doing it for nice things, that's very admirable. Um, <laughs> as it was keeping alive a mass murdering uh, tyrant mm. um, to, you know, inflict him on the universe again, you sort of question his motives. <laughs> <laughs> What's in it for me? Well, you know, I've, I'm going to be uh, in, in, I'll be standing in the shadow of a great man again. And um, it's just being in his shadow that uh, makes my life worthwhile, which is... I suppose an interesting perspective, especially with a, a bloke with a brain in a bowl. Yes, and then as you said before, um, we move away from um, you know the BBC uh, got a bit antsy about the whole Hinchcliffe approach and moved on to the lighter touch. And as you said before, a lot of touch of Williams and Adams. Uh, but as you said before, it was a uh, a lighter touch. Uh, you know, the, the, the villains were more fey, more or urbane, uh, less less nasty i suppose the Sunmakers, for example yes i mean they're, they're quite those two are quite pantomime aren't they can't remember what they're called though they are they are i mean because i mean it, i mean a story like the Sunmakers is is effectively a satire yeah and you need you know pantomime villains villains to poke fun at because not only you're poking fun at them but you're poking fun at a system that you're trying to satirize i.e. the British taxation system. Their villainy is of a lesser order, I suppose. But, I mean, you know, when you think about it, you know, the wholesale movement of humanity to Pluto and then their oppression and then squeezing the last, you know, cent out of them um, is, particu- is, is, a, is, is a bit nasty, but it's coated with humour. Henry Wolfe as a collector, a fantastic portrayal, especially at the end where he's still trying to get, collect money and he's just shrinking into this... <laughs> Looks like he's sitting on a toilet. And just yes. goes, it goes, goes down the plug hole. I mean, it's a very pantomime ending, isn't it? I mean, but but again, it's the, it's the approach that production team were dictated to take. Yeah, the BBC took fright, uh, unfortunately. Well, I mean, I suppose you don't you don't want you know the entirety of the latter part of the seventies to be grim and gritty. I mean, what Doctor Who always has presented is variety, and while you can probably quibble about the quality of the stories during the, you know the Williams era. Uh, in some part, uh, you know, though he had Douglas Adams, you know, riding herd over the riders and pr- producing himself, you know, producing stories himself, hmm. and you you get that 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 particular flavour shot through that that era. I mean, as you say, the Grafton Decay is 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 a in some ways a pathetic character because he's lost it all and he's sort of existing on the on the on the on the fumes of his you know past glory or, or fame. Um, and uh, he he meets a you know he, he's a little bit of a nasty fellow, but he, he in some ways a little bit sympathetic. You know, if, if you've ever, I've always felt sorry for people who've 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 reached the heights of fame or or glory and then have been brought undone by their own hubris or brought undone by you know mistakes and they've they've sunk low again. So I, I have a degree of sympathy for villains or you know bad guys like that. Gray Williams Zera actually had uh, more female villains. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Lady Adastra. From the creature from the pit, and also Vivian Fay in the Stones of Blood. I mean, they're very uh, strong 
female villains, aren't they? Yeah, I wonder why why that approach was taken. I suppose it was just probably more for variety's sake than anything else. That you know, that the show had a strong run of male villains. The, the Hinchcliffe Holmes era is very testosterone fueled. Hmm. It really is. I mean, Sarah Jane uh, Smith is is really the only guiding is the only female voice in that era, uh, and I suppose latterly Leela. But um, yeah, the, you get that, uh, and I suppose that just highlights the different approach that uh, that um, Adams and Williams were willing to bring to the show. And so we progress into the 80s, that, uh, that era of glitz and glamour and big hair and even bigger shoulder pads. Hello there, Kato Mara. Rest in peace. <laughs> and you reach an era of the show that, uh, again, there are memorable villains. But I, th- I personally think the show, for a length of its time, particularly during the Sayward years, reached a very cynical point Um Again, as I mentioned before, you had Lytton, you have a, a mercenary as a sort of a, a hero or an anti-hero, or has a heroic death sort of thing in the, in the, in Attack of the Cybermen. You you have... Dotsy from Kaz of Androzani. Well, exactly. I mean, Sayward, for some reason, was in love with um, with, with the, the sort of the mercenary character. You know, the bloke, the, the lone wolf living on the edge of existence, uh, willing to, you know, take someone else's coin and work for them. Same with the William Gaunt character in uh, Revelation. Or Orsini. Yes. I mean, which is, a, I mean, I, as we all know, I like Revelation very much. And Orsini is a wonderful dark character, uh, motivated by honour, but liking to blow people up with, you know, machine gun fire. But um, it's, uh, I, th- I think that a lot, of the, a lot of the monsters are portrayed in a, in a particularly cynical light. I mean, you see stuff like uh, a Vengeance on Varos, which you watch and you immediately want to go have a shower because <laughs> even even the governor is a dist- is a slightly distasteful figure hmm. uh, surrounded by just you know grotesques in all shapes and sizes. There's Sill, there's um, there's the uh, that that bald-headed bloke with the mustache who you know I'm terrible with names, but you know who I mean. There's yeah. the blo- there's the character who wants to turn Perry into some sort of squawking bird. Uh, why I don't really know. I mean, it's just, it's just, a, and and the setting is profoundly disturbing as well. None of them are likable, are they? They're all. It's a terrible society to live in. I mean, it just produces bad people. I mean, people mm. are willing to watch other people being tortured for their own entertainment. So, I mean, the whole setting is just an exercise in villainy. It's just, it's just horrible. Mm. It's just really horrible. And I mean, you know, it's it's effective. There's no doubting that. But it it makes you feel profoundly uncomfortable, and you. And again, the show is reflecting the world around it. The, the whole, you know, the the, the the tabloid scare about video nasties and all that sort of thing. And you know, to be frank, uh, the a segment of society, a segment of British society, who who railed against the Thatcher years and you know Thatcher economics and and that sort of thing. Um, you know, humans being reduced to commodities, humans being reduced to entertainment fare. Um, uh, it's just, uh, I mean, it's it's certainly striking, but. It doesn't make for pleasant Doctor Who sometimes, that, that sort of approach. It's just the, the 80s is an interesting period because, I mean, yes, I suppose uh, during the Hinchcliffe years, some of his you know villains could have been, were just as nasty. I mean, you think about Sutek and, uh, and, and Magnus Grill, but it's, their, their villainy is a more pulpish villainy. 
and it's more grand and entertaining in a, in a sense. I mean, both of them are bombastic figures. Both of them, are, both of them, have have grand sc- schemes and dreams. But when you get into the eighties, it sometimes feels that those that's all been done away with, and it's there's a bit of perversion and perversity. I mean, you look at Shara's Jack in the case of Andrazani, who ordinarily would be somewhat of a sympathetic figure, you know, abandoned, betrayed, hideously disfigured, and yet he's lech- leching all over Perry in the most stomach-churning way. Mm. And you think, let's, let's just think about this. This is a man who was bald alive in mud, all right? So think about a man bald alive in mud, horribly scarred from, from head to toe, having these urges over Perry that he clearly can't fulfill as a man should be able to. And you, you, again, you just want to scrub yourself with steel o wool after watching it. <laughs> it's it's great, and it, and it makes it elevates caves. But sometimes that villainy is so oily that you choke on it. It's a parallel to Black Orca with George Cranley, who again is disfigured. He has uh, obviously lustful intent for Nissa, who thinks he's somebody else. The only problem with George Cranley is that he can't convey it via speech. He's had his tongue cut out. When I watch it now, it's, it's like a bad taste in my mouth. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me these days. I think the true villain of that piece actually is Terence Dudley for his really crap script. Well, no, that's true. But, I mean, what about Cranley that, that, you, that you find distasteful? It's just that trope where if you're disfigured, then you are evil. Ah, okay. And that's what doesn't sit well with me i know and i suppose because uh case of androzani for example they're on a different planet so it's a different it's a different setting i suppose where this is more it's on earth and, and just the look of horror on people's faces when, it, when he takes his mask off it just yeah doesn't sit well with me is that too deep no i mean you'd like to think that we live in more enlightened times but i mean that's that's a trope of the physically disfigured individual yes who gives in to their disfigurement and <laughs> says well screw the rest of you um, I look bad, I must act bad. And yeah. it, it, in a sense, I suppose it's lazy. You're right to criticise Terence Daly because it is lazy writing. There's, there's no, I suppose there's no nuance in, in that sort of writing. And I suppose in two episodes it's hard to get nuance. But try harder sometimes. You, 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 just liked, you would have liked some writers to have tried harder to give you know, the, the, their bad guys, their villains, um, some some depth some character some you know humanity in a sense it's just like the fan of the opera isn't it well exactly and of course i mean uh we, we mentioned the master during the pertwee years how do you how do you rate the portrayal of the master during the you know the, the, during the 80s because he again the master pops up in each season more or less started off strong in legopolis ended strong in in survival and his appearances in the middle where just just disguising himself for no apparent reason. I mean, time time flight is the is the epitome or the nadir of all that. And King's Demons as well. He's quite good in Planet of Fire. I didn't mind him in Planet of Fire actually. Uh, five Doctors. He's the put upon villain there. Trying to do the right thing, and he's just Pertwee's giving him grief. They're all giving him grief. It's just it's just a pity that, again, I mean, I, I like Anthony's only portrayal, you know, topped and tailed. I mean, it showed that he could do, he could play the role. And it didn't necessarily all have to be, you know, mustache twirling extravaganza. But I just think the scriptwriters and 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 Sayward particularly didn't know what to do with him. And I suppose if he had come back less often than what he did, perhaps that's the staleness and the performance wouldn't have been as evident. Mm. 
I, it's just it's just oh we've we, well you know they've got this character he's been part of the show's history let's bring him back because the fans like to see the master again he looks like Delgado you know mustache black hair swept back and all that sort of thing but it it's in the main not very good and it's not very good for the series as well I think some of the portrayal we sort of talk about in the middle uh, reading that JNT book he was told by JNT to portray the character slightly hammy he kept saying more steel Anthony more steel so like example Planet of Fire where he tried to a crisp at the end and then mm. Mark of the Rani he's dressed as a scarecrow there's no there's no explanation on how he went from A to B it's lazy it's lazy it's just completely lazy Mm. All right, so we've stuck the knife in. What what are some of the highlights of some of the villainous highlights of that of that era of the eighties? Listen, what a stylish portrayal of a villain there, where he has many different facets, and you think in Resurrection he's completely well, he's completely evil in that story, but and in Attack of the Cybermen, it redeems himself slightly. Omega, for the wrong reasons, because he's he's got a giant chicken with him. The giant chicken. <laughs> the giant chicken. I mean, I like. I was just thinking about it. I like. Um, the the Mara yes now you again it's that it's that um, disembodied evil that you know has to find a form a face and a form somehow in a sense the Mara is corruption mm. and the Mara is a corrupting force and I think that's an interesting thing for the show to to, to look at especially in an era that is you know uh, an era that uh, in 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 history that is is condemned today for you know its its moral corruption the corruption of you know of wealth um that uh, that was on display you know you know during the economic boom of that time mm. and and you see that um the mara being a corrupting force it it uh it it highlights i suppose what the doctor stands for i mean if again if if the evil if if the bad characters or the, you know the, the villainous characters are meant to be a counterpoint to the doctor and you have this corrupting force i mean the doctor especially during the davison era I mean, he looks like a pure figure. He looks like a hero, you know. Uh, he's got blonde hair. He wears a light-coloured costume. He's purity embodied in Peter mm. Davison. And you have this corrupting influence on the characters around it, uh, you know, in Snake Dance and um, Save Me. What was the story again? Kinder. And uh, it's it's a very interesting contrast. And the way that the, the evil is dealt with by reflecting its own evil onto itself... Uh, is is a really striking way of of of, of depicting evil mm. and dealing with evil. That you know, if you force evil to confront itself, um, it realizes. Well, I mean, this is an idealistic thing. It realizes the error of its ways and, and runs away screaming. If you had confronted Adolf Hitler with the evil of his ways, he would have said, "Bring it on! Your your evil is my good." Um, in in a sense. But I mean, the the, the, the depiction of, of of the Mara, I think, is is a real high point. During the eighties, what about the guardians? The black guardian, in particular. See, I mean that that, that sort of depiction, I would I would argue, lacks nuance on both sides. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting performance. Uh, I mean, you see the, the white guardian threatening the doctor uh, at the beginning of the key to time with, "If you don't do what I do, you will end up doing nothing forever." Mm. I mean, that's an interesting uh, facet of that sort of uh, that idea. But then you get into the you get into the eighties and it's just pure hammy acting by Valentine Dial. It's just ranting and raving and, and evil, evil, evil. Yeah, and evil laughs. Yes, exactly, cackling yeah. and, and, and craziness and and again, it's, it's as if they the production team didn't know what to do. They they, I mean, it's it's interesting to hark back to the pulp roots of this this the, the show, so to speak. But 
you know, it, it, you, you're not treating your audience like adults. You're not treating your audience fairly by, you know, having characters like that. On the flip side, the the Black Guardian recruits Turlo, mm. and there's an interesting thing because you have a you have a a character who is on the inside of the you know he he's close to the Doctor. He's inside the TARDIS. Yeah. And he is an undermining force in a sense, and he wants to kill the Doctor because that's the only way he can become free. Mm. And Turlo, for those three stories, probably not afterwards, is an interesting conflicted character who, you know, you're stepping back, you go, well, he wants to murder the Doctor. The Doctor is a nice, is, is the hero of the show. Turlo is bad. But is Turlo really bad? I mean, he has really no choice. And he, suffer, and he suffers anguish from what he's being asked to do. Especially in Enlightenment, where he chooses not to have it and um, saves the Doctor. And saves himself, in a sense. Redeems himself. You had a couple of female villains in that period. You had um, Captain Rack. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist ourselves. No, exactly. I love Linda Barron. I think she's great and um, open all hours. God, I'm shocking. Yes, that's her. Fantastic, fantastic. Like Anthony Ainley, over the top, chewing the scenery. And then you have Jackie Pierce in The Two Doctors, where, again, her motives for her villainy are... Well, it's genetic, really. It's she genetic, has no choice. Right. She's yeah. designed to be a monster. Yeah. She's she's made to be a monster, which is... Well, that's an interesting approach to take, I suppose. I mean, the Rani is a, is an interesting counterpoint to the Master, where she's more calculated and less mad. Yes. Um, now, you know, Kate O'Mara has sadly passed away recently, so, you know, we won't... Well, we're never going to get her stylings back, but, um, I mean, that's an interesting where she is amoral, I suppose more than evil but um and she's she's almost like the um in Coast of Androzani the the again my, I'm shocking with memory the female character who Timon who actually uh, succeeds and runs and runs the corporation there i mean by their own lights they're doing the right thing i mean the the the, the rani is you know pursuing her scientific interests and i suppose her the results are slightly dr mengelish but, um, I mean, she's just she's interested in the pure pursuit of science and if people are hurt along the way, uh, bad luck. I'm not interested in power. I'm interested in, in knowledge, really. And it's, and it's the same with Timon. I mean, I suppose she's she's brought up in a cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, you know, culture or corporate world. And, well, if killing people is the way to t- climb to the corporate top of the corporate ladder, I'm not the only one who's doing it. Mm. Everyone else is doing it, so... I mean, in, in, within that society, we, we would look at the, on that with an abhorrence. But we, I suppose within the, that culture of that corporation on that planet, Androzani uh, Major? Major, yes. Um, that's just standard behaviour. How anything actually gets done with people being killed off left, right and centre is beyond me. But somehow they've managed to succeed. So, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting take on that sort of trope. <laughs> Poor old Colin Baker gets the boot. Who's the greatest villain in the Colin Baker era? Michael Grade, exactly, Michael Grade. Jonathan Powell. Yeah, so, I mean, in the McCoy era, because then you, Derek Sayward, who is clearly exhausted and had enough and fed up, says, screw you to J&T and goes off, and we get uh, a new new script editor that comes in with different ideas, different takes. The Paradise Towers. Poor old Richard Bryer's performance as the great architect. Well, it's gone back to the old 
soul deed type of portrayal, isn't it? It portrays the writer's view of that character and how it should have been portrayed. Same with the Candyman in the Happiness Patrol. The writer wanted him dressed up in a white smock. I don't know how a designer could turn a white smock into Bertie Bassett. But I, don't, I don't know. But um, the portrayal of the great architect is very over the top and pantomime Well, I think, uh, I think it portrays a lack of knowledge of where the show had come from i suppose a broad broad villain like that might have made sense in an earlier era of the show mm. but um in the in the late 80s i mean for all the criticisms of uh, and uh, of the 80s and, and some that we've made tonight with regards to you know the depiction of some villains i mean a lot of them were strong strong characters who weren't necessarily ott but yeah i mean during that mccoy's first era they i think the writers just lost lost their grip on you know what had didn't know what Doctor Who really was and how, how far it had progressed and were just willing to throw up any old thing just to satisfy whatever what they believed the show you know needed, I suppose, or what the show was all about. And same with Fiona Walker as Lady Painfort. It's the same criticisms levelled at her, really. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real pity because, uh, again, female villains are so rare mm. that to, to, to see that sort of character essentially thrown away... Um, is a real pity because uh, it just what the show needed at that time, I suppose, was something more nuanced hmm. uh, that you you could you could as a viewer you could grapple with a bit more. Instead, you just got pure pantomime, uh, and that's just you know that's just that's lazy in my opinion. That's lazy writing, unfortunately. But you also had some highlights: Kane from Dragonfire, and also the Chief Clown in Greatest Show. That guy puts a creepy bejesus in anybody, doesn't he? Well, exactly. I mean, it's just. Um, that's that's the template that you should have been going for hmm. in 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 the, in the late '80s. I mean, the, you don't you don't need to chew the scenery to be effective. You just need to be understated and subtle, but menacing. And you know that's that's what you got in the greater show in the galaxy. There was a, there's there's a definite unsettling vibe going on there, um, and I think that character epitomizes it to a great extent. Moving on to the modern series, we have, and we've discussed this before, that especially during RTD's era, the show become more domestic, became more domestic. You know, the Doctor was tied to uh, a particular family, uh, you know, in different facets during the RTD era, and it became more soapy in a sense. You know, you had returning people and all that sort of thing. And I think that a lot of the villainy tended to become domestic as well, mm. and I, which I find... A little bit dull, and I and and I, the 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 worst depiction of that is to see the master come back as played by John Sims, and to see him shown as a, as, a, as essentially a wife beater in um in is it the last of the Time Lords? Domestic violence is upsetting and to be frowned on. Obviously, I mean that's a, that's a commonplace, but is it something that needs to be shown in Doctor Who? I mean, you can get that sort of thing anywhere on television, and by making the master as you know base and as commonplace as the bloke down the road who beats his wife up every every friday night after he's come back from the pub um i think is it sells the show short it sells the character short and it sells the audience short a little bit well i'm assuming that was shorthand to show that everybody on that ship is suffering and his wife in particular. It looked like everybody was miserable in that bloody spaceship anyway. It didn't need to have her with a black eye. And then in a sense, the Doctor rewards the Master by sobbing over his death. I mean, here's, here's, a, here's a man who has dominated the Earth for a year and, and caused great misery, 
He beats his wife, and then the doctor cries over him. That's just in my book. That's sending a confused message. I mean, there's it's just sending a confused message. Where and it's just a great lost opportunity. The Joan Sims, Joan Sims, the John <laughs> Sim Master is is one of the great lost opportunities of the modern modern incarnation of the show. I feel sorry for John Sim because obviously he was told to portray it like that. It was was to come where he was shooting lasers out of his bloody hands. That's just disappointing. Yeah. But that 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 that, that sequence of stories was pretty disappointing anyway. So. And especially when he had Derek Jacobi as the master for five minutes of pure brilliance. That was glorious. That was just glorious. Yeah. And again, the sh- the the creative team are selling the audience short by saying. We can't have an old man, an older man play the master and we can't have him play it like it was in the 70s and 80s where I would take five minutes of that over X number of episodes of John Sim. I mean, you know, he's a great actor and all that sort of thing. He can act. But what he was lumbered with was a crying shame and guaranteed not to have him back if uh, Moffat brings the master back for mm. you know Capaldi's uh, tenure. Um, I think they'll go with a different approach, and I, I have the impression that they might go. Well, that's just a guess, obviously, but they they might go with a more Delgado approach, perhaps, or a stronger Anley approach. But I mean, there are there are, there are, again, there are plenty of um, memor- Well, there are plenty of villains, obviously, in the modern era. I think the high point was uh, the whatever the thing was in Midnight. Again, it takes it, you know you have a disembodied something take over uh, a human character and what that creature does during the latter part of that episode is is probably some of the most effective screw with your head villainy or evil or manipulation whatever you want to call it that the new series has actually done i i re-watched it a few weeks ago and it was as effective now as it was you know six or five or six years ago it's deep it's actually upsetting because it's what it's doing is taking over people's personalities it's devouring people's personalities and the loss of the sense of self and identity incumbent in that is as horrifying as having your hand wrapped in green bubble wrap and it's gloating about it as well it's glorying in the fact mm. that it's it's able to do this mm. it's um yeah no it, it, i i find that episode uh, and that creature probably one of the most effective you know things of the rtd era of the show they've had more female villains in the new series haven't they well you know it's the 21st century um which is i mean which is great which is good i mean you, you see someone a character like river song who um who is treated like a criminal uh you know in, in one sense and is you know lauded as a companion and a and a, and a, a, a good guy in a sense you know, does good things for for good reasons, and is is treated you know in prison for doing so. But um, you know, there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, female you know villainesses uh, in the new series, and that just you know you just see uh, that's just that's just modern Doctor Who basically reflecting modern life. the end of our uh, historical episode we announced that we had two copies of the uh, best-selling web of fear dvd to give away courtesy of uh, bbc on dvd and phil morris of course and the winners are drum roll good enough andrew boland 
uh, also known on Twitter as World Journeys, uh, who is an expat Aussie currently uh, residing in Japan. And the other winner was uh, Martin from Salisbury in the UK, who uh, sent us his letter, and he writes, Hello, I love the podcast. It's great to have presenters that don't take the podcasting too seriously, I mean that in a good way, and also have a good level of analysis. Your historical episode was great. I do not think they would do a pure historical nowadays, because, as you alluded to, the audience expects monsters or aliens or something otherworldly. Having said that, I think that a historical set in Victorian times with the Pananoster gang would be a way of doing it. Strax and Vastra would be a way of having the monsters included, with the Doctor and co being caught up in something interesting. As someone who has recently moved from Australia to the UK, the AFL chat was extremely welcome. No one talks about it over here. My team is at Adelaide Crows, so I can sympathise with the opening rounds feeling of hopelessness. Well, the only thing, uh, only football they're talking about in the UK is Liverpool missing out on the uh, on the Premiership and the Premier League. And if you're an Adelaide Crows supporter, uh, uh, this weekend is another cause to hang your head in shame after losing to Melbourne. But um, well, look, you know, thanks very much for those um, those those very nice comments, Martin. Um, we, you know. We try to do our best with the podcast and, and present something that you know has a bit of analysis, but also we don't take ourselves too seriously. I think, well, I hope, at least I hope we don't. Uh, and you know, we certainly take on on board your comments about um, the the willingness of the production team nowadays to to do a pure historical. They the, they may do it with um with 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 Capaldi, but though as we discussed uh, earlier, the Robots of Sherwood is clearly, as the title suggests, not a pure historical. But um, yeah, it, I mean, uh, just harking back to the historicals, I'd love to see um, them try it at, at the very least, mm. um, because the BBC, uh, like basically no other broadcaster in the world, uh, knows how to do a, do historicals. They've they've got the, the setup and the, the corporate memory and all that sort of thing. So, uh, or the willingness anyway, and um, it's just steeped in you know the, the the sort of the television of the uk that they can you know that they do that sort of thing very very well all right the next letter is from a jez waterstone jez says well done on the latest podcast did jr's input alter your views of the moffat era in any way i've been going through box sets of many cult sci-fi shows since christmas tv methadone to tide me over until moffat returns with more nerd heroin in the autumn i imagine most of us are well versed in uk and us series but are there any australian sci-fi shows you would recommend to a Hoovian? that might have escaped the attention of fans in the rest of the world. Don't say The Girl From Tomorrow. Keep up the good work. Love, Jez. There was Nowhere Boys. That's done quite well. Yeah, that's aimed at the well, yeah, young adult audience. Um, that's actually won um, the Australian equivalent of a BAFTA, though this is it's a low-rent award. The Logies. The Z-list BAFTA. It's a Z-list. Yeah, but Nowhere Boys about a group of um, teenage boys who slip into uh, an alternate world where they don't exist. Uh, from, that's my reading from the first episode that I watched. Uh, Farscape, in a sense, was filmed here in Australia hmm. and had some Australian actors and some Australian Muppets. We've got a good record over here for making great shows in that sort of kids, teeny genre. Um, a couple of years ago, there's one called Thunderstone and Spellbinder, but I'm struggling to actually think of a proper, an adult Australian sci-fi show. As you said, Farscape. I remember years ago, not about 15 years ago, Brian Brown, who, if you've ever watched Cocktail, starred alongside Tom Cruise. He he hosted a series of, twi- well, a, some episodes that were Twilight Zone uh, inspired. I think they were called Twist in the Tail. So if you're looking for some sort of genre take 
uh, within Australia, you can look at that. But outside that uh, that you know young adult teenage space, it's it's pretty hard to think of anything uh, that has been done. I mean, I don't I don't think Australian TV is really keyed into that sort of thing. It's it's you know it's soap operas like Neighbours and and Home and Away. The the cop show genre is particularly strong in Australia. Uh, at the moment and has been for whew, since the 60s at least with shows like Homicide mm. um, I remember in my youth in the early 80s there was a show that was shown a kids show half hour that was shown every Sunday morning when I was living in country Victoria that involved a couple of kids on the run and they had some sort of crystal that if they flourished it in the air would stop time and I can't remember for the life of me what it's called but it certainly it was certainly striking I mean I, I can remember that and I know um, and here's the very vague Doctor Who link. There was a show in the 60s called The Stranger, um, which other than linking to, you know, the Colin Baker, The Stranger, has no link to Doctor Who. But that was uh, a science fiction show that I think might, might have been aimed at a sort of an older audience, but I don't really know. I don't even know ever whether it exists anymore. Um, yeah, I can't think of any particular, um, uh, you know, genre genre shows aimed at, at, at adults that have been on TV. I'm struggling as well, but if anybody uh, wants to get in touch with us and let us know what we've missed, please do so. I mean, I'm sure there's an obvious title that we have missed. What about Jez's uh, point about did JR's uh, input alter our views on the Moffat era in any way? I've always appreciated Moffat's ability to turn out a, a clever script, you know, going way back. Um, and having seen some of the, you know, the Smith episodes again and, you know, in rewatching for that particular episode... I'm interested to go back and, and look at them again. Personally, having watched some RTD episodes recently, I think the Moffat era is way better. Hmm. I, th- I think there's, I think a lot of the RTD era is not very good Doctor Who and in a way not very good television. And I know that's insulting because he's a professional, a consummate professional, and it'd be appalled to hear something like that. But just some of the pacing in you know the first Eccleston you know the Eccleston series is deathly slow and towards the end of his run it became terribly self-indulgent and a number of missteps you know particularly John Sims portrayal as the master you know were ensued so I think my interest my 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 positivity towards the modern era lies more with the Moffat series uh, and that's you know helped immeasurably by Matt Smith's performance. Mm. So I mean, just listening to listening to Jr. You know, happy to take on board what he says, and certainly, I think I'll go back uh, one day with a more you know, with my eyes slightly more opened. I suppose my take on it was, uh, I'm still not a fan of his arcs in terms of the way he's architected him and the payoff. But as Rob said, I think the stories in in Moffat's era. And three of those stories have been written by him. Hold more interest to me than some of the stories in the RTD era. I mean, some great stories in in the Smith era. And I've actually started watching uh, it again with my seven-year-old for the first time. So I'm watching it with through his eyes, and it's been quite uh, an interesting experience. My version of my son in space, really. How's that going? Is he is he enjoying it? We watched uh, the eleventh hour. Funny because the things that you take for granted, as in, oh, they're not that scary. He was head buried in a pillow, <laughs> slowly freaking out. I said, be fine, mate, be fine. And he did enjoy it at the end, but uh, the Prisoner Zero snake, um, the CGI oh, snake yeah. for that, I forgot how terrifying that was. 
and especially he was just sitting there cowering next to me. I felt like a bad parent. Bad dad. Bad, bad dad. dad. It is. It is quite. It is quite vicious. It is. The the, the snake. The depiction of the snake creature. Yes. Yeah. I I don't ever see myself doing the same sort of thing that you're doing with my my daughters. They, I know my youngest daughter has no particular interest in the show, <laughs> and I think my oldest daughter would probably sit down with me out of loyalty to me. I'd you know I'd ask her and she'd go, oh, okay, all right, dad. But I don't know that. Certainly, if I was to present to her the eleventh hour with the really freaky-looking snake, she wouldn't enjoy that at all. Mm. Um, so I don't know that I'd inflict that upon her. So not that I'm saying that you're inflicting anything upon your son, but um, I know spooky things uh, make her very jumpy. So um, just for you know family harmony, I'm not going to go down that path. My wife said to me, maybe you should watch them again and you vet them before you show them. And I said, yeah, it's probably a good idea actually. So I might have to watch them twice, which means watching Victory of the Daleks twice. Well, see, Victory of the Daleks you could show to a child because you could, you could. It's got colourful, crappy Daleks in it <laughs> and nonsensical plot. It's brilliant. Uh, it, oh, well, dear. I mean, it, if you want to rip off the best, we'll rip off Power of the Daleks. But you know, for God's sake, do it right. All right, one one more letter. Somebody called J.R. Southall. He, I think he's going places in Doctor Who. I don't really know. Uh, Will I read it out? I suppose I'll I'll read it out. I had a thought following your historical episode and forgot to bring it up. I think this is in reference to um, uh, him being on last time. The reason why RTD didn't do any straight historicals was because he had an edict down from on high at the BBC. They were rather worried that not having aliens involved would confuse viewers, I suppose, and told him very clearly to sex up the historically set stories. Moffat, on the other hand, I just don't think it would fit in at all well with what he's doing with the program. To use a musical analogy, the 11th Doctor's tenure was like the Beatles during their anything-goes psychedelic phase. I just don't think it would have occurred to them to put something like Love Me Do or Please Please Me in the middle of the White Album, just as I don't think it would suit Moffat to do something quite as straightforward as a straight historical during the 11th time. He doesn't even do straight pseudo-historicals that often, if you think about it. Victory of the Daleks had a Churchill who was already friendly with the Doctor and whose best friend was a robot. The God Complex had a 1980s hotel that it turned out was a simulation. The girl in the fireplace had historical France interacting with a spaceship from the far future. So, I mean, J.R. makes some, some, some interesting points there that I suppose you basically go on what Moffat is happy to present up. And if he's going to do an historical, it's, it's basically a pseudo-historical. I think... You know, from my reading of it, he seems more comfortable doing it that way, handling it that way. That, you know, injecting some fantastical elements is more within his comfort zone. Mm. And I suppose, you know, it, it it's interesting that if the BBC uh, was that leery of, you know, historicals, uh, what else were they leery of early in the show? I think they were, there was, a, I think the show was on very shaky ground uh, early on. And, um, you know, if it hadn't been... Well, clearly, if it hadn't been a ratings smash, it wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have gone past that first year. I think there was a lot of uh, lack of uh, faith, con- lack of faith, and lack of confidence in what mm. RTD was hoping to do and trying to do. I think we should wrap this up. I think we should wrap this up. We're going to do a plug to um, the Science of Doctor Who show, which is uh, travelling around Australia at the moment and hosted by friend of the show and occasional guest host Rob Lloyd. Uh, it's going to be in Sydney on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of May, Adelaide on the 31st of May and dear old Melbourne on the 13th, 14th and 15th of June. You can find out more information uh, on the science of Doctor Who from the, the RI Oz website, riaus.org.au uh, forward slash Doctor Who. So uh, get yourselves down there and check it out. Thank you everyone for listening to our episode, our villainous episode. 
I have been that Lech Sharaz Jack. And I've been Mr. Chin. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to another instalment of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Mark and Rob. If you'd like to contact us, please do so via our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday, email us at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com, and find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. And until we meet again, may your Doctor Who be good Doctor Who.